Welcome to Radio Finance, the podcast that helps you understand the transformative developments taking place in the world today. Very pleased to be able to speak to Richard Bywer, the Chief Executive of GGNEX, a company that came to my attention when it was listed on Nasdaq just uh, earlier this month. But the curious thing about DigiNex is that it's promoting itself as the pioneer of digital asset exchange that has been listed on Nasdaq. I want to test with him a number of ideas in terms of where this whole concept of uh, DeFi, which is decentralized finance, will take us and the structures that he's building, not just in the basic trading of the digital assets, but the whole community and the capital markets and all of the supporting infrastructure that he's already figured out in his mind. So thank you for having this conversation with me, Richard. Tell me, uh, to start with, a little bit about um, DigiNex. As you say, it's a fairly large milestone for both the company and the industry to be bringing the first digital asset ecosystem to NASDAQ. We're very excited about it. To give you a little bit of a framing of what we do, we have at our center We have an exchange called Equos. Equos actually operates out of Singapore under the MAS uh, regulatory framework, the Payment Services Act. Uh, We have an exemption from MAS until such time that we get the license. So we operate that exchange, cryptocurrency exchange, and that sits in the middle of the full ecosystem. So the ecosystem around it is, for example, a trading platform that we have called DigiNex Access. DigiNex Access is a multi-venue trading platform that plugs into some of the world's largest uh, trading technology companies, PMS providers. And this is extremely important for people coming into crypto, certainly from the institutional space, but actually all the the managers currently in crypto that don't have portfolio management solutions. What's interesting about that platform is it allows you to get access to the entire industry from Binance to BitMEX to Coinbase, as well as our own Equos. And so this is a big problem for the industry. It's about liquidity aggregation and creating all of that in one single place. And then being able to arbitrage across these platforms or or run algorithms across the platforms in different types of spread trades, for example. We also have an asset manager. Our asset manager is Bletchley Park Asset Management. It operates out of Switzerland and also it's regulated in Hong Kong. Uh, We operate a fund of hedge funds that are focused specifically on the crypto asset class. So again, if we think about broader institutional adoption of this asset class, trying to put their first foot in the water, they want a nice alpha centric product. So what we've done is we've done a very high grade operational due diligence across the industry. We've met with 250 funds um, and actually we've selected a portfolio of very market neutral based strategies, very high sharps um, that have allowed us to create a really nice portfolio that's very diversified across the different types of strategies in the industry. We also have a custodian. Our custodian was built by Ministry of Defense of the UK to crest certification standards for cybersecurity, as well as Cyber Essentials Plus, which is the Ministry of Defense own designed cybersecurity accreditation. And then finally, we have our investment bank. So our investment bank is Diginex Capital. Diginex Capital is focused on securitization mandates from hard assets through to private equity LPs, through to private equity direct deals. 
And what we do there is really tokenization of these securities and distribute those on our, on our platform as well. But how do you get alpha on hedge funds for crypto today? Well, so there's a lot of alpha in the industry. There's a lot of fragmentation in liquidity. There's lots of different platforms. So say, for example, you know, Binance Bitcoin price could trade at some points 10, 20 basis points higher than a different exchange. But you can only access that if you've got an account with both and you've got balances on both. But if you've got balances on both and you've got an account with both, then you've got free money to be taken. That's alpha. At the back end, how much of the exchange mechanism in crypto is similar or maybe superior to traditional securities? Is it just as robust and up to date in terms of speed and everything? I would say absolutely not. It was for that exact reason that we felt that this, this industry didn't quite have an institutional offering. And I'll give you a couple of examples. So there, there's a, I'm sure you've heard of API connectivity. So that's yeah. the way that, that technology connects to other technology. And in the financial services industry, there is an API protocol called FIX 4.4. FIX 4.4 is a standardized language of communication of, of numbers and, and uh, trade information between exchanges, banks, private banks, etc. And so we are one of only very few exchanges in the entire crypto industry that use FIX, FIX 4.4 as our protocol, because that's the what institutions use and need. And actually, we, we built all the various different APIs that are used across the industry, but actually our fixed API is used by the majority of the institutions on our platform. Another thing is derivative infrastructure. So today, you know, if you go into a, a bank or a private bank and you're running a, a derivative position or option position against your collateral, all of that will get blended into a single portfolio and effectively you'll get margin calls based on that portfolio's value. What happens in crypto is that nothing's associated with each other. You don't get that portfolio margining. So you may be running one of those arbitrage trades that like, for example, right now, there's a very good trade in the futures versus the spot price in Bitcoin. There's a lot of money to be made in arbitraging those two. But even if you're running it on the same exchange, so say, for example, Chinese exchange, for example, probably a better example, yeah. and you're running a short versus a long spot position and Bitcoin price flies, you can end up getting stopped out on your short position, even though you're delta neutral. And obviously, this is not a way that you can manage a portfolio efficiently and make sure that you're guarding that alpha for your investors. So a lot of the information that we've garnered over two and a half years of building our fund of fund has actually informed how we build our exchange. How capital intensive is this business? I mean, do you need to put out capital of your own to, to fund that liquidity in order to be a player? Yeah, so the market makers obviously have this problem. You need to have liquidity at the different exchanges. So managing that across all your exchanges, you've always got this capital efficiency issue. A few of the banks out of the US have started to help with that and have created settlement networks between the different platforms for fiat. So Silvergate is a good example, as is Signature Bank. This is exactly that sort of problem. It's capital intensive for the players. Why didn't you think of an ICO yourself? We really struggled with the credibility damage that ICOs did to the industry. 
you know, 95% of them were just outright scams and people just jumping on the bandwagon. We looked at that and we said, look, obviously this is going to end in tears. Our investment bank, Diginex Capital, is focused on bringing digital-based assets, but actually being a security. So it's really just improving the transmission rails and leveraging the technology to actually deliver the same quality of securities that we have in, for the moment, private markets, but I do anticipate seeing that move into broader capital markets. What were the due diligence points that you had to go through with Nasdaq Qualify? The main focus for approval was the SEC. We submitted a nearly 500-page proxy filing to the SEC in October last year. They were interested in how we were going to be running our capital markets business, whether or not we were doing ICOs or offering ICOs or helping with ICOs. The SEC, once they've signed off, obviously, then we started the process with Nasdaq. What was the one most important thing that you needed to assure them on? Uh, the one most important thing at this point in time was that we weren't operating in the United States without proper authorization. How did you assure them about how you distinguish your client base? We have a very, very deep KYC and AML process for people onboarding to our exchange. Um, it's, it's obviously something that the SEC has had problems with. You look at where they've cracked down. It's been on exchanges that don't do KYC and AML and have unwittingly onboarded US persons, I should say, because it does include corporates, without having the necessary regulatory licenses. Richard, you come from a traditional investment banking and here you are pioneering a marketplace for digital assets. And if we you know, take the narrative of how the traditional securities industry has evolved up to this point. Where we left it off in 2008 was that the regulators were saying that they wanted to get more of the OTC transactions on regulated exchanges. The bond market really didn't buy into that. And then there are very specific markets that insisted on operating outside the purview of a regulated exchange. And then came the rise of uh, digital assets. And here you're building markets and there is the element of the network effect, which is somewhat different. Is it different from uh, the principles that are in operation on a regulated exchange, on an OTC, and now on or an exchange of digital assets? We've actually been very cautious in rolling out further listings on the exchange because we do actually want to bring a standard to the industry around listings so that when people on board to our exchange and see certain assets listed, they feel the comfort that this has gone through in the same way that NASDAQ does, that this has gone through the Equos approval process. And therefore, it's an asset that is something that I can be comfortable with um, investing in. We are not a market maker. We don't market make on our own exchange. We do have traders that, that help with facilitation for OTC and some of the liquidation process. But actually, we do not do any market making on our own exchange. But um, just this whole idea of the network effect on an exchange, how do you think it's going to play out on an exchange of digital assets? I myself think that there should be a network effect on exchanges, but I don't see it at all. Most exchanges operate in isolation as silos. But how do you think that it will play out, if at all? We had a saying in traditional markets that flow begets flow. So the more flow you have, the more flow you get, um, because more and more people want to interact with the liquidity. When you talk about the fact that obviously you've got these exchanges operating in separate liquidity pools, you're absolutely right. By having Diginex access, you actually start to 
aggregate that liquidity into a single portal of trading uh, that you can have. So this is the interesting dynamic that we have around digital asset exchanges is that you don't necessarily need to have it all in one place because you can move from one exchange to the other in the time that it just takes to approve a transaction on that particular blockchain. So settlement across exchanges can be very fast. And so as a result, you can end up, and we have ended up, with multi multiple liquidity platforms. What's happening globally, the equities market seems to be pulling up the rest of the economy. It's NASDAQ in the US, it's uh, maybe the Hong Kong exchange, to some extent China. And that's based on the old regime. If I looked into your computer screen, what's the composition of the assets that you're trading right now? What's coming on stream? And how do you think that's going to evolve? So saying NASDAQ's flying, Hong Kong stock exchange is flying, why is you know other exchanges across the world not necessarily flying? I think there we're missing the point that, that you're talking about a specific asset. Even within those exchanges, you're seeing a dichotomy between the larger caps and the smaller caps. That's a function of passive versus active. We're starting to see a much larger swathe of passive investing going, moving away from active. That's been a theme for many, many years. But it's actually now getting to a point of being quite dangerous with, you know, what happens when you get a sell off and suddenly all of these stocks could end up just getting hit together because everybody's in the same trade because they're all in these passive funds versus, you know, active. You know, the idea of us wanting to digitize everything, really the, the way that the market is focused, it's on efficiency. It's, you know, everything that we deal with in Diginex Capital on the securitization side is generally coming from a place with poor transparency, a lack of visibility around documentation, and also poor pricing and poor liquidity. So if you think about securitization markets, securitization banking deal will take months, if not years to put together. And so as a result, you've got a lot of inefficiency. Same with private equity, you get a lot of opacity in that market. For example, the liquidation preference of a series A versus a series D. If you're invested in the series E, you need to understand what those different liquidation preferences are and not necessarily you'll get access to that. Certainly not if you're a smaller investor. So being able to democratize that and open that up a bit, this is where we're seeing the use case for digital securities, digital assets at this point in time. If you think about digital assets broken into four key areas, you've got cryptocurrencies, which will blend in with protocol tokens like Ethereum. Uh, you've got utility tokens, which is a little bit like Singapore Airlines. You've got e-payment e tokens, so stable coin, US dollar uh, coins, but built on a blockchain protocol. And then you've got the final piece, security tokens. So if you look at those four sort of areas, the main focus for me at this point in time is around the cryptocurrency space because that's what's active now. At the other end of that spectrum, you've got the security tokens, which is another big focus of our business, but still that's a maturing and very nascent industry altogether. And so, you know, we actually spend a lot of time working with regulators in terms of helping them put together regulatory frameworks around um, how would you iterate your securities legislation to make them focused on digital. 
Um, so we've spent a lot of time with a number of global regulators around this factor. Is there a space where you, you add value as a service provider, as a consultant, where you help issuers design their crypto or their asset and make it attractive to you know, whichever pool of customers? If, uh, except for the large ones, uh, a lot of markets are very specific. They end up you know, being of interest to a very clear pool of customers who are sometimes very localized. The Warren's market in, in Hong Kong is in the same way the, the bond market for China is actually Chinese investors again. So they may look interesting. They may look like you can globalize them, but actually they end up operating within specific communities or specific pools. Is the consulting, the, the designing element, you know, the more valuable thing that you can be doing as a business to uh, in the industry because there's, the, the number of uh, platforms are growing. I think that you raise a really important point. So how do you deal with an asset base that is not restricted by borders in the same way that everything else was previously? Like if you have an account with DBS or uh, OCBC, you can pretty much only deal with certain selected foreign stocks and Singaporean stocks. But what happens when it's just literally a wallet that can receive any asset based on that protocol? How does that change the global economy, the global trading and global platforms? I think it, it really does. And this is the point that we need to say and work with regulators to help them understand that we're not going to be confined by the same borders. And how is that going to adapt because of the technology is sort of breaking it already. You touched on DeFi, decentralized finance. You know, anyone can set up an Etherscan wallet. They can actually start to participate in this industry without any regulator getting involved. So how do we look at all of this from a platform perspective and help regulators work together across the world to allow for innovation, but to continue down a path where investors are protected? Um, and I think that is a very big question. I think the European Union last, last week actually announced that they wanted to have broad uh, union-wide uh, regulation for digital securities. And I think that's a very important step. Regulators working together to actually form the whole base. And then, you know, an exchange operator like us only needs to be licensed in one platform, uh, oh, sorry, in one jurisdiction, but then can access the world. And that's the way it's going to go. I want to challenge you a little bit here because uh, how do you speak about uh, DeFi, which is, um, you know, uh, decentralizing finance on the one hand and then being a regulated entity on the other hand, when all regulators want to have something that they can have control over. And where regulators are today is that they're all very bank centric which is, you know, they're happy with a bank setting up its own crypto asset or its own digital asset where the bank even pre-qualifies the participants and then it creates an ecosystem around itself and it's happy. After that, you know, and even central banks, several regulators have kept talking about, you know, proof of concepts of, uh, you know, cross-border payment platforms and stuff. And they've been holding this uh, at, at a test level for years. I mean, you know, it's not moved at all. So how do you conceptually bring together the, the idea that DeFi, which is decentralized, and regulators want control? DeFi is breaking the regulatory model. So regulators need to think differently. And if they want to have regulated platforms, then they need to basically operate with each other to allow us 
to be able to compete against decentralized finance. I would say it's also from the customer's point of view as well. Because if you think about institutions starting to participate in this space, they need to make sure that they're operating within regulated platforms, regulated frameworks, and also having third-party custodianship. None of that exists within DeFi. So you're, you're, you're very fringe at the moment with this technology, um, and you're certainly not open to many institutions that would potentially want to participate in the asset class. So institutions today need to be able to operate on a regulated uh, third-party platform with a regulated custodian. I think DeFi is kind of breaking the model and it's making regulators think that the only way that you're going to be able to regulate something like that is have a global approach to regulation. Do you think that there can be a digital version of the US dollar eventually or a currency that's global? Theoretically, I, I don't see why Bitcoin cannot become a stable coin hooked onto the dollar as its value. That's what happened to gold. And that effectively becomes um, a global currency as a result. We stopped talking about Libra and everything else. And we stopped going to regulators for permission. It, now, what are your thoughts on, on stable coin, on a idea of a global currency, and how much of what's happening that can become global uh, needs regulation in the first place. The first question was around, as a very, very uh, pertinent observation, we needed to choose a regulator that we felt was innovative enough and someone that we could work with to help adapt the industry. And actually MAS uh, in Singapore, we felt very strongly had taken an innovative approach to dealing with virtual currencies and wanted to help propagate the industry. MAS have said that while we're under exemption, we can't deal with anybody in Singapore. But when we get the full license, then we can deal with um, customers and people in Singapore. Which they have not given out at all. They're giving themselves time to, you know, to respond. I guess when the time comes, uh, the structures are in place, they, they can make it happen. But so I, I wouldn't call them innovative. So your job is to try to make uh, your securities tradable as broadly as possible. There's two frameworks we're talking about here. We're talking about a virtual currency exchange and we're talking about a digital security exchange. They are two different regulatory frameworks. So the MAS have, have actually gone quite light on the virtual currency uh, exchange side of things. And to your point, they wanna see how the industry um, grows um, and on what sort of direction working with entrepreneurs like ourselves who see are more fit and proper in terms of having come from regulatory backgrounds from investment banks they've allowed us to be engaged on things like how do we regulate derivatives for our approved exchanges uh, in this space they've been really quite open uh, in terms of seeking feedback from the industry and actually they're the first regular to try and at least make a step in the direction of the way that future regulation is going to look from the requirements of FATF. When it comes to digital securities, we are not even in process of uh, regulation yet, yet there for our exchange. Um, that's something that will be coming down the road. What about the dollar being the idea of a, a stable coin, a global stable coin? I think we're pretty advanced. Um, the Bitcoin exists. It has been growing as a network for 11 years now, there's more and more hash power or computing power being fired at the network to implement transactions and security than ever before. The, the, the network is extremely secure now. 
but it is a currency that is scarce. Um, and I think this is actually a, a, an interesting part to your, your framing. And I think the way you're going with this conversation is, is around the fact that you've got irresponsible money printing coming from just about every central bank on earth right now um, against, you know, how do you have a, a scarce asset linked to being a global currency? So for example, backing the US dollar with Bitcoin uh, as opposed to gold as it was prior to 1971. So I think it's a very interesting angle you're coming from. Um, I'm obviously a big believer in Bitcoin as a store of wealth uh, against what is a massive uh, inflation of the money, monetary supply, um, which is seeing the debasement of the US dollar, but the debasement of pretty much every major currency across the world. We've already started to see central banks come out with their own digital currency that can jump over the banks that are put in the middle and go direct to consumer. Um, so China's obviously done it first. They did their airdrop um, of, of tokens to 50,000 wallets in Shenzhen. So that's suddenly woken up the rest of the world who obviously see China always being very strategic in the way that they, uh, they move uh, throughout the world and long term. And suddenly the US has had to wake up and say, okay, actually, we've got to think about a digital dollar and how the Fed uh, manages that. And obviously the IMF came out with the paper in the presentation earlier this week about how we should expect to see central banks operating in unison around policy. Um, and then, you know, what does that mean for money printing? I see lots of opportunity, for example, in utility coins. You know, if everything can be digitized and utility coins may well be one of the ingredients for rebuilding economies after, you know, the pandemic is over because uh, it's not just a matter of uh, pumping more liquidity into the marketplace or uh, increasing credit, but recognizing value that already exists in communities. But uh, regulators are not about to firstly move out of their bank centric systems they want to keep a watching brief on on uh, digital assets at the same time digital assets are growing in ecosystems that are outside the control of regulation you said that the idea of um, digital assets is that anyone can issue digital assets and that's the promise of it but your business itself is uh, focused and limited on what's tradable at the moment i see what uh, you're saying Emmanuel. i think that the point that i've tried to make is that you can't just throw someone in the deep end and say this new technology has arrived. We've got frameworks in place. You need a centralized, regulated, third-party custodian and exchange that can actually provide the services that in investors today, in the way they're constructed, need to be able to, to invest and allocate. I sat at Davos uh, and spoke about capital markets. I was on a panel with a number of extremely intelligent people in the blockchain community. And we're sitting there talking to a, a group of 50 investors. And the guy to my left starts talking about cross-chain swaps and multiple protocols. And immediately you just see everybody in the audience just face glaze over. It's like, what are you talking about? So you've got this huge divide from where we are today in terms of our institutions and where technology is taking us. And you need companies like Diginex to be able to provide the stepping stones to get there within a regulatory construct, because that's what they need. So I would say it's just about a stepping stone, right? And obviously we'll evolve our business as institutions evolve.
the question related to that is interoperability, right? So is that the next thing for you, building platforms which uh, which interoperate between assets and asset classes? We already have it. I mean, Diginex Access, that's exactly what it is. It's a liquidity aggregator between platforms. A quick point on um, central bank digital assets. Where do you think that's going? Is there a role for a company like yours? Eventually, if it is internationalized, everyone seems to think that the Chinese are going to internationalize their digital currency, but I don't think so. I think that's uh, created to solve a domestic problem. And what's interesting is that the technology around digital currency seems to be simpler than most people think. Mm. Uh, the, the Swedish just outsourced it to one of the accounting firms and they were using very basic technology. So it's electronification of fiat currency uh, at the moment. But do you think that it will take a life of its own? What it does is it expands the freedom of what these central banks can do. So you think about the issue that we've had in the United States around COVID and a lot of you know, uh, working class people losing their jobs, having whole families to feed and not being able to get the benefits uh, that were being handed out by the government because of inefficiencies in the process. What you have with the creation of a digital dollar is everybody has a wallet like they did in China, and you can immediately start to allocate income to people that need it. So you've got this universal basic income that sort of starts to propagate. You then also got, and the IMF made it clear in their paper, that you've got much better control over interest rates for the entire currency, the entire monetary supply, because you can't control because you have a wallet where you've got your you know, digital Singapore dollar sitting in it, you can't control what happens with the interest rate on that. Either you're getting a negative interest rate or a positive interest rate. But actually, if they start to try and move towards a much more egregious negative interest rate, again, what can you do about it? This is taking cash out of the system. And so it comes back to Bitcoin when you need to be storing your assets in something that is scarce to protect your wealth against both a hugely increasing monetary supply, but also negative interest rates that can start to spiral as another form of taxation. Two questions to, to finish this off. One is, um, do you see financial institutions that actually issue their own digital assets coming to exchanges like yourselves to create markets for them? The last question really is your stock price. What are the trigger points that, that it seems to be responding to right now? And how do you think it'll work through? I think that uh, JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs and those sorts of players definitely need a company like ourselves. We've like to build a company like ours within an institution will take years. So Goldman are already advanced in terms of their, you know, what they've been studying in digital assets quite for some time. They've got a Bitcoin trading desk. Um, JP Morgan have actually already introduced their own JP Morgan coin uh, for settlement within their ecosystem. Um, but other, you know, sort of other banks that have been left behind, they're actually going to need to move into the space very quickly. So I think that most likely what will happen is either we see those banks on board with us and start to white label our services or one bank just comes along and just fully acquires us, which I, I think will end up possibly being a likelihood as this technology increases. Um, to your point around the stock, um, bear in mind, it's very early days. We entered the market via SPAC, so you don't get the same normal publicity that you get with an IPO. I think that not many people know about Diginex. We bottomed out uh, a couple of weeks ago, and stock's up about 80% since then. 
Um, I think, you know, slowly we're starting to get people pay attention. Obviously, with Bitcoin's continued meteoric rise, I think people will look to us as a comparative player in the sector. And uh, and then they'll, yeah, they'll, they'll probably start to continue buying. Richard, thank you for this conversation. Thank you for listening to Radio Finance. For more content, visit the Asian Banker website and follow us on social media.